Exodus chapter 10, beginning in 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses, beginning verse 13, Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled in the whole country of Egypt, Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Philosopher and author James K.A. Smith proposes the idea of a Martian anthropologist trying to figure out what it could about earthlings by coming to earth and studying our behavior. What could they learn based on our actions? What could they learn watching us at the mall or at school or in worship? I would extend that question and say, what could an outsider who knows nothing of us and nothing of our God, what could such an outsider learn about God from the lyrics of our songs? They would learn that God is great. They would learn that He is loving, that He is merciful, that He is faithful, and so on. But would such an anthropologist be able to construct that He is a just God who judges the wicked 
and condemns evil. Oh God, you wipe out the wicked ones. You judge with great force. We don't, I mean, we, we did a few today intentionally. You know, you who think of sin but lightly, nor it, the depth of its guilt estimate, look at the cross and see how God views sin. But why is it? Why does the thought of praising and singing about God's judgment make us squirm? It's all over the Psalms. Most of the Psalms, the, the song book, the hymn book of ancient Israel is filled with Psalms praising God for his judgment, calling upon him to exercise that judgment. And yet for us today, most often his judgment is something that embarrasses us, something we don't talk about in polite company. Because after all, the one who told us to turn the other cheek, the one who calls himself loving, and gracious, who is by definition, God is love. Yet he also curiously strikes down nations and threatens eternal condemnation. Yet we cannot be faithful students of Scripture and avoid the fact that judgment is a big part of who God is and of what he does. This is a two-part series. We are looking at the plagues, this week and next week. Next week, we'll be looking at God's graciousness that is still visible as He is exercising His wrath. How He preserves some. How He extends grace. How He is patient in the midst of His judgment. But this week, this week we're looking at something a little more challenging. We're looking at how God's graciousness is shown in His judgment. The fact that God's judgment itself is a good thing, something we should, in fact, rejoice in and for which we ought to be thankful. And I, I need to mention, just as an aside, that this is not directed at current events. We've, we plan our sermon series years in advance. We plan out the weeks a year in advance. We could not have known a year ago what would be going on in Israel and what these conversations going on in, in the culture would be about revenge and judgment and justice. This is not directed at any of that. It is not an indirect or direct commentary on any of that. Because when I speak about God's people using Scripture, I'm not speaking about any nation today. I'm speaking about His people in Christ and the enemies that they face primarily the enemy of the prince of the power of the air and those who oppose God on this earth. So I'm not making a political statement at all with these words. I need that out there. Because we are looking today at how God's covenant people, us, we, ought to rejoice in and be thankful for and praise His judgment because in His judgment, He shows His graciousness. One of the ways we see that here in the plagues is that through God's judgment, the enemy is defeated. Something that we, the modern readers, miss as we look at the, the account of the plagues in Egypt is the spiritual nature of the battle. This is more than just about the liberation of Hebrews from Egyptians. This is the victory of the true God over false gods. In chapter 8, as the, the frogs have overwhelmed, the plague of frogs are overwhelming, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh in chapter 8, verse 9, 
hey, Pharaoh, I'm going to let you tell me when God should end this. Be pleased to command me when I should plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and go back to the Nile. And Pharaoh said, tomorrow, do it tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Moses gave Pharaoh the opportunity to decide when the plague of frogs would end so that Pharaoh could know that it wasn't just coincidence, but that God would perform it at the day that, Moses, that Pharaoh specified. In doing so, showing that God had unique power. No other God was doing this. It was at God's command that the plagues would begin and end. And in fact, as the plagues reached their climax chapters later, in Exodus 12, the Lord says, On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. This is what we really miss as modern readers when you consider the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. One god was associated with the Nile, so the Lord turned it to blood for seven days. And that god could do nothing about it. One god had the head of a frog. And so the Lord sent a plague of frogs, which the God could do nothing about. One God was represented by flies. Another had power over the dust, which Moses threw into the air and turned into a plague of gnats. And yet these gods were powerless to stop it. Another God was represented with the head of cattle. So the Lord sent a plague on all the livestock and killed the cattle. Another was the goddess of healing. Isis was her name. And, and God sent a plague of boils on the Egyptians and their God could do nothing about it. And then their highest, their greatest God, Ra, the God of the sun. And for three days, they're plunged into darkness. God is not just randomly picking an assortment of plagues with which to annoy the Egyptians. He is mocking their gods and showing their powerlessness. The plagues on Egypt were not a random assortment of disasters. They were sent by God to demonstrate his authority over the very realms that the Egyptians believed their gods controlled. And so the plagues were a spiritual battle where God showed his strength over the false gods of Egypt. And then, when Pharaoh himself, the servant of these false gods, and the oppressor, the enemy of God's people, when he is defeated at the Red Sea, the people of Israel sang a song. They rejoiced at the judgment of God. In Exodus 15, here's the song they sang, rejoicing in how God had defeated his enemies. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The judgment of God is a gracious thing for his people because he overthrows the oppressors of his people. He defeats his enemies and their enemies. Enemies that had enslaved them. Enemies whose intention for his people was their death. Pharaoh had tried to wipe out the Israelites again and again. We perhaps underestimate how this is true of us today. 
Because we are not Hebrew slaves in Egypt. We are Americans. We are free and we are prosperous and we are mostly happy. And if we just have Jesus, that's the little add-on that we need to our already good life. Jesus is the leg up that we need to get over our obstacles and to attain the perfect life that we're seeking. And Scripture describes our situation in far bleaker terms. We were enslaved. We were under a sentence of death. We were at the mercy of enemies whose goal was our destruction. In Hebrews 2, it's described like this. Since the children, us, share in flesh and blood, since we are human, he himself, Christ, likewise partook of the same things. Christ became human so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You, me, your neighbor, your loved ones, the stranger on the street, is by fear of death held in lifelong slavery to the one who holds the power of death, who wields that power to tempt you to find whatever enjoyment and peace you might for today because you're going to die, or to seek whatever security and peace you can find out there in order to push away the date of your death and to live just a little longer and a little happier. You are held captive to the fear of death, but Christ in his death, judges and defeats that enemy and sets you free. And so the judgment of God falls upon his enemies and that is a decidedly good thing that we should rejoice in because until our enemy is destroyed, we are not safe. We are still captive. As long as the enemy is still out there, we are still captive. It reminded me of something my dad said. 18 years ago, he was diagnosed with the cancer that would eventually take his life a few years after the diagnosis. And my mom was keeping me up to date on how the doctor's appointments were going and, and what was being said. And she called me at one point and said, yeah, that, you know, he was, the doctor was explaining all these medicines he could take to kind of reduce the discomfort and help with the pain and help with this symptom and that symptom. And your dad finally stopped him and said, I'm not interested in hearing how you can make me a little more comfortable. I want to know how we can lick this thing. Because that's, that's a no-nonsense approach. That's realizing you can bandage up and you can paper over your life. You can make your life a little bit more comfortable. But if the enemy is still out there coming after you, you are not safe. And all the temporary comforts will fail. And that's what so often our approach to life and to the Christian faith is. We're trying to handle little symptoms of a deeper sickness that is not being addressed. And until that sickness is cured, until the cancer is removed, until the enemy is defeated, we are not safe. The psalmist recognizes this, calling upon God to bring judgment so that his people would not just be temporarily safe, but receive a permanent deliverance. In Psalm 10, the psalmist sings, again, this is a song of praise about God's judgment. The Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from this land, from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted and you will strengthen your, their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth 
may strike terror no more. The prayer of the psalmist is that God's judgment would affect a permanent salvation so that the enemy who opposes us would, would receive justice and would terrify no more. The goal of God in exercising judgment is not to deliver His people temporarily from a temporary harm, but to give a permanent salvation. Christian, this has been done for you in Christ. In forgiving your sins, God has not given a temporary fix. Where he's, he, Yeah, He forgave how you messed up in the past, but now you still have to hold it together and fight your way through to the end. That's, that's not gospel and that's not hope. And that's not salvation. As long as the enemy of God has power over you, you are vulnerable. And so on the cross, through the death of Jesus, the power of the enemy over you is defeated forever. The cross was not just about forgiveness of sins. The cross was about the defeat of the enemy. Not only is your sin judged on the cross, the enemy is defeated. We already heard this in our assurance of pardon earlier in our worship from Colossians 2. Our sin, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Yes, we're forgiven. And when he did that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's speaking of the spiritual powers, the rulers and authorities. And he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Christ, God triumphs over the enemies of God's people. And so people of God, you are called to rejoice in the judgment of God. It is a defeat of your great enemies. Satan, sin, and death are put to the test and God is shown to be mightier. Just as He shamed the gods of Egypt and all of their servants by proving Himself mightier, He has done the same for you in the cross of Christ. You have an assurance which you receive only because of the wrathful judgment of God. In Romans 8, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In the original language, that is a rhetorical question with an implied answer of no one. God has soundly and thoroughly in the cross of Christ defeated those who would be against you. Your God is not just mighty. He is mightier. He is mightier than any evil power. He is mightier than any king or nation. He is mightier than any foe or fear. Mightier than any temptation or addiction. Mightier than any condemnation that comes against you. What then shall you fear? The answer, child of God, is nothing. And that is because of the judgment of God that defeats your enemies. Praise be to the Lord. Amen? That's not all. The judgment of God defeats our enemies, yes, but also through God's judgment, justice is accomplished. In chapter 10, verse 3, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Recall that this is Pharaoh who a few chapters earlier we saw when, when they first approached him. And said, Yahweh, the Lord of the Hebrews says, let my people go that they may serve me. Pharaoh responded, Yahweh, never heard of him. No obligation to listen to this guy. He's your little, you know, slave deity. 
I've got Ra, the sun god. I have got the mighty gods of Egypt. I don't need to care about Yahweh. And yet now he has been faced with undeniable demonstrations of the power of the Lord and still refuses to humble himself, still refuses to admit that he is wrong, still opposes this mighty God and oppresses his people. The result of that is described in Romans 2. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. When we are stubborn and refuse to repent, we are not avoiding the consequences and punishment of our sin. We're just adding to an account to be paid later. We're not escaping justice it's being stored up, awaiting the day of God. But later in chapter 10, we see Pharaoh finally admitting his wrong. In chapter 10, verse 16, he hastily calls Moses and Aaron. He's like, I've sinned against the Lord your God. I've sinned against you. Please forgive my sin. Just this once, plead with the Lord to remove this death from me. But there's a problem. Have you ever had somebody who... Uh, who admitted that they were wrong, but only because they got caught and they were suffering the consequences. And as soon as the consequences are taken away, they're right back at it. That's what happens here. After the plague ends, Pharaoh doesn't change. His heart is still hard. He wasn't sad about his sin. He was sad about the consequences. And once the consequences were removed, he went right back into doing evil. So this is somebody who is storing up wrath. Justice needs to come. How would the story feel, though, if after this the Hebrews left Egypt and Egypt was fine? No consequences, no judgment, no justice, no penalty for 400 years of slavery and abuse. It reminds me of the, uh, the movie Princess Bride where a grandfather is reading a fairy tale story to his grandson. And at some point in the story, the, the apparent hero of the story seems to have died, which really disturbs this young man who's, who's really upset. He says, but, but who gets Humperdinck? Humperdinck is the, the bad guy here. Okay, you know he's Humperdinck. He's the bad guy because he's got this name that just sounds Humperdinck. He says, who gets Humperdinck? Is, is it this guy? Who's going to kill Humperdinck? Because somebody's got to get him. And if the hero's dead, somebody's got somebody's to bring justice. And the grandfather says what nobody expects. He says, Nobody gets Humperdinck. Humperdinck lives in the end. And the grandson says, what kind of story is this? He can't believe it because he knows in his child's heart, he knows that if the bad guy doesn't get it in the end, then it's not a good story. And we know. We know that justice must be done. Evil deeds can't go unpunished. For 400 years, the Egyptians had profited off the labor of their slaves. The Hebrews had built their buildings, planted their fields, raised their livestock, and in 10 plagues, the Lord just wipes it all out, takes everything away. Every, all those ill-gotten gains, all those unjust deeds are wiped out. The book of Revelation describes souls in heaven standing around the throne of God in His presence, experiencing of all things impatience and discontent. Why? Because justice has not yet been done. 
Listen to Revelation 6, 9 through 10. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are in the presence of God and they are unsatisfied until justice is done, until sins are paid for. But you may wonder, is he not a gracious God though? Have we forgotten about the mercy of God? Yes, absolutely. He will not let the guilty go unpunished, but he is also slow to anger. He is merciful, and we're going to hear a lot more about that next week. The slowness of God to anger. The grace that he extends to those who don't deserve it. God is merciful, but he is not only a God of mercy and grace. And in describing himself in Exodus 34, he says that he will not let sin go unpunished. Listen, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So though he is a God of mercy and grace, he does not allow sin to go without justice. And to see that, we have to look at the cross again. In 2 Corinthians 5, we see that God made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin. 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. God is merciful, yes, but He does not give up His justice. He does not set it aside. He does not ignore it. Justice must be done. And so there's only one path for mercy. And it's the path of the cross and of repentance in the name of Jesus. If God is to be merciful, it must be because the sins are put on Jesus. For those who by faith receive that mercy, who recognize that, God judges their sins, justice is done at the cross. And by grace, the sinner is forgiven because Jesus is punished. The deepest stroke that pierced him, we sang earlier, was the stroke that justice gave. But for the pharaohs who do not repent, for those who do not look to the cross and who reject that path of God's mercy, for the stubborn hearts that reject God's grace, justice will still be done when God brings his judgment upon them. They are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And to the people of God, I remind you again that this is intended to be cause for rejoicing. Because it means that one way or another, whether on the cross of Christ or on the day of judgment, every evil deed will be avenged. There is no harm against you, no sin against you, no injustice that escapes the judgment of God. Every unfair act will be paid for. Every hurtful word will be accounted for. Every injustice will be made right. This means that those who build a kingdom opposed to God and who resist Him will one day declare, as the servants of Pharaoh did in chapter 10, verse 7, do you not understand? We're ruined. 
Egypt is ruined. God has brought ruin in his justice. And so we rejoice and we pray and we hope for the mercy of God to reach all people. We desire for people to come to repentance, to forsake their evil deeds and to receive what Christ offers. But scripture also calls us to rejoice that sin will be fully and justly punished in the judgment of God. Again in Revelation, this time chapter 19, after the judgment of God has fallen upon a sinful world, we are taught to praise in this way. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Take heart, be patient, and rejoice, because justice will be accomplished. Lastly, and very briefly, one more way in which the judgment of God is cause for rejoicing, one more way that it is a gracious thing, is that through God's judgment, hope is established. Hope is established. We see this in the repeated refrain that the Lord says to Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. The ultimate hope and destiny of the people of God is not Egypt. Their hope is not that Egypt will be made a more tolerable and accepting place for them. Their hope is not that they will become free citizens of Egypt. Their hope is not that they will rise to power in Egypt and overthrow their oppressors and lead the nation. Their hope is not in Egypt at all. Their hope is in what God has promised. But the hard thing about false hopes is that they don't die easily. The people of God, as the story goes on, they're, they're out in the wilderness and every time things get hard, what do they say to Moses? We should go back to Egypt. It was better in Egypt. Their hopes are still there. But sometimes the most loving thing that God can do for us is to close the door on our false hopes. Sometimes the most loving thing that God can do for us is through His judgment to close the door on our false hopes. A few weeks ago in, in Sunday school, I shared an entire poem by a man named John Newton, who began, the, it's, the poem's called These Inward Trials. John Newton's the man that wrote Amazing Grace, the famous hymn. And he, uh, in this poem, he says he's praying to God and asking that God would enable him to know His mercy and know His grace and have greater faith and he expects that God's going to remove all the difficulty from his life. And by removing all the pain and all the hardship and all the struggles and all the difficulty, John Newton would be able to, to recognize the goodness of God and rejoice in it. Did I say Isaac Newton earlier? It's John Newton, if I, if I said Isaac. John Newton. But instead, the Lord adds trial upon trial and suffering upon suffering until John Newton says this in the last two stanzas of the, of the poem. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayers for grace and for faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and to break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. God in love breaks our schemes of earthly joy in judgment 
upon the things that would tempt us away, that would give us a false hope. Not only had the Israelites become unbearable to the Egyptians and offensive to them, the kingdom itself had been brought to ruins. There's nothing for them if they go back. The judgment on Egypt served to wipe out any remaining hope that they had that Egypt was their future. And instead, it more firmly established their hope in the promised land to which God was leading them. Perhaps it was for this reason that the Hebrews had to experience some of the plagues right alongside the Egyptians. They were not spared all of the plagues. Next week, we'll look at how they were spared some of them. But yet others struck all of Egypt, including the Israelites, teaching them that here we have no home. And people of God, it is the same for us today. The judgment that falls upon this world sometimes hits us as well, doesn't it? And we experience pain and sorrow and death and sin and suffering. And each one is a reminder that our hope is not here, not this nation not this world, not this life. And so we pray to God, your kingdom come. Or as Paul writes in Romans 8, these sufferings, the sufferings of this present time, they don't compare to what God is leading us to, the promised land He's taking us to, the glory that will be revealed. The whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Something new is coming, but it's painful. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for, the, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As we see God's judgment and experience in ourselves the pain and frustration of life in a fallen world, our hope is turned away from the temptation to expect peace in a world under judgment. And we are reminded that we're made for another land, a better kingdom. Something we find only in Christ. In John 14, he promised his disciples, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. That's where we're going. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. But if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back. I'm going to take you there myself, that where I am, you may also be. That's what we're headed towards. That's where our hope is to be established. Our hope in life and in death is Christ. Not anything in this world, no matter how good we try to make it. Do you seek peace, comfort, and hope? Seek it not in a kingdom under judgment. God in His love will not let you be so deceived. Instead, He forces you to turn your eyes away from a world under judgment and to fix your eyes on Christ. I've tried to make the case that the judgment, the wrath of God, is not to be set up in contrast to His love. But instead, Scripture compels us to see them in this way, that the love of God can be measured by the force of His judgment and His wrath on behalf of His people. To illustrate that, I want you to consider a movie that came out years ago that had a lot of violence in it. And many movies today have too much violence, gratuitous violence, unnecessary violence, because the violence is just about, um, it's just about selfish gain or revenge or something like that. But in this particular movie, the movie is called Taken. It's a movie about a father whose daughter is taken. And when his daughter is taken, kidnapped, 
and being sold into slavery overseas, this father, out of his unrelenting love, utilizes all the skill, and he has some crazy special skills, and all the strength and all the resolve that he has to pursue her without stopping until he gets her back. And along the way, he has to wreak violence and exercise his wrath upon those who stand in his way and those who would keep his daughter from him and those who would bring her to harm. And the measure of his love is in the lengths he would go to to bring down judgment to save his child. His wrath is directed by his love. And when we see God's judgment in Scripture, And when we talk about his judgment, we have to see it in the same terms. That it is the strong, relentless, unshakable love of God for his children. That rises up to defeat every enemy until his children are safe. That acts out to bring justice against every sin and every wound and every wrong deed. And a love that will not let them be deceived by false hopes and will not let them remain in Egypt when they are called to a paradise they cannot yet imagine. When I speak of the wrath of God, brothers and sisters, I am speaking of the love of God for you, expressed in judgment, forever turning our hopes to Christ alone, our hope in life and death. Let us praise God that He is wrathful and that He comes in judgment for the sake of His love for His children. Our Heavenly Father, You have poured out Your wrath on sin, not because You delight in wrath, but because You love Your children. And in Your judgment, You will take down every enemy that has risen up against Your people. And You will bring justice for every wrong deed And you will turn us away from our false hopes and establish our hope in you. Thank you that you are a God of judgment. Because of that, our hopes rest secure in Christ. We pray according to his will and therefore in his name. Amen.